to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Okay, thank you for joining us on this episode of ASHP's podcast. This podcast series, we talk about current trends in med safety, some regulatory issues, and other safety best practices that improve our patients' care. This is po- podcast is part of the ISMP Targeted Best Practice Series. This is a series sponsored by the ASHP Med Safety Section Advisory Group. We call them SAGs. Uh, my name is Paul Milligan, and today we're going to be chatting with Joel Daniel and Eli Deal. All three of us uh, are medication safety pharmacists of, of some level at uh, some diverse healthcare systems. And interestingly, with two different electronic medical records. So, so with this one, we will get started with the targeted best practice. The, IS, the purpose of ISMP's targeted best practices, and I'll quote just three words here, identify, inspire, and mobilize widespread national adoption of some consensus-based best practices that they find are continuously causing fatal and harmful errors, despite the fact that it pops up on their uh, ISMP publications repeatedly. So today we're going to be discussing uh, one of the two new ones that they added this year for 2021, best practice number 15. For those of you who like to do them by number, and and it's the one that uh, addresses safer opioid prescribing. So I looked back and I counted no less than 16 previous med safety alerts from ISMP on this topic. And so now it has its own uh, best practice for this year. Again, my name is Paul, and I'm the system med safety pharmacist at BJC Healthcare, which is 15 hospital system in St. Louis. Joel Daniel joins us from downstate Missouri and near Springfield in a similar system role for Cox Health. And the, our other expert is Eli Deal, who joins us from BJC Healthcare also, where he is the system director of medication safety and effectiveness at BJC. So thanks everybody for joining us today. I'm going to start off by giving a little bit of background on the on the best practice that we're going to be talking about, number 15, our opioid safety. This new one incorporates a previous one that was focused primarily on fentanyl patches. So the best practice is to verify and document opioid status, talking about naive versus tolerant, and pain type, acute versus chronic, before prescribing and extended release or long-acting other long-acting opioids. So the goal from ISMP is to support appropriate prescribing and prevent death. And the secondary goal is to pre- prevent the inappropriate use of the fentanyl patches. Why do they focus on fentanyl patches? They were the highest ranking drug involved in serious adverse events from the FDA from a, a recent report. And ISMP continues to receive reports, including fatalities, due to the administration of fentanyl patches to treat acute pain in different settings in opiate naive patients. So I'm just gonna quickly go over, I'm not gonna read it, but the uh, the highlights of the best practice, they have four of them. One is to default to the uh, lowest initial starting dose when you're ordering an XA, extended release or long acting opioids. So your electronic medical record should default to the lowest starting dose. The second is to alert practitioners when dose adjustments are required due to age, renal liver, uh, renal impairment or liver impairment, or when patients are co-prescribed another sedating medication. 
The third one was to eliminate the prescribing of fentanyl patches for opiate naive patients, which has been on this list before, and our patients with acute pain, not appropriate. And the last one is eliminate the storage of fentanyl patches in automatic dispensing cabinets where only in areas where they only treat acute pain, they shouldn't be needing that. So we're gonna go on to our experts now, that's the background. So Joel and Eli, the, all of this seems to start with knowing what the opioid status was. Um, have either of you reviewed an event or know an event that was possibly preventable if you had had that type of knowledge ahead of time? Start with Joel. Thank you, Paul. Incidents are not typically realized unless there is a patch or an extended release opioid involved. However, I monitor all inpatient opioid harms. That is reversal of with naloxone after an administration of an opioid. While monitoring and continuous report outs um, can lead to significant sustained reduction in harm, some of the big picture items that we've learned is that opioid harms are commonly caused by treating opioid naive patients as if they are opioid tolerant. This can be related to an extended release opioid, but doesn't have to be, such as when we have an opioid naive patient who's given either really large doses or really frequent doses of opioids. One case that I've seen in my experience that really has stuck with me is where we thought that we actually had a good harm reduction strategy in place. A fentanyl patch was ordered for an opioid naive patient. Now, normally we have a prescribed fentanyl patch worksheet that the pharmacist goes through to ensure that we are not giving it to a, an opioid naive patient. However, this process of filling out a physical worksheet was missed and the patient received a larger size patch for quite a few days before they were discovered during chart reviews. The patient had to be weaned down before being weaned off. A root cause was quickly identified and attempts to further um, hardwire and improve the process resulted. Now, thankfully in this case, the patient was continuously monitored and was fine, but I think that's really what we're trying to get at with these best practices is not only do you have a great system in place, but how can we further hardwire to make sure that this happens every time? I think that that is really quite the crux of the ISMP um, best practices is all about is so that we look at finding methods that we previously thought would head off harm and hardwire them so that we have a more robust system um, so that they so that we have a higher um, level on the ISMP hierarchy of interventions, all the way from education at the low end to forcing functions on the high end. So for high alert medications such as with extended release opioids, we're currently striving to ever increase our level of interventions that we have in place to hardwire um, the system. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I think similar to Joel and the experiences he's had at his facility, um, over sedation events are one of the most commonly reported events at uh, our institutions, particularly over sedation associated with opioid use. And oftentimes those events, when you dig into them, are associated with uh, the lack of knowledge or lack of insight into opioid status uh, as far as tolerance versus uh, naive. And many times we'll find uh, rapid titration or reliance on extended release products in some of those opioid uh, naive patients uh, associated with that uh, over sedation. Yeah, I think um, for those of us who have to who read these narratives on a daily or weekly basis and read some of these, it's uh, I think ISMP is on track with this. Um, certainly, from it looks like all all of our experience. So um, the next question I have for you guys is about how do we define opioid tolerant um, and discuss some of the cognitive operational challenges that are presented with that uh, definition. And I'll start again with Joel. Thank you. In our search, we found that there were actually quite a few differing opinions and actual um, official definitions out there. Uh, when we talked to clinicians, there was a bit of confusion as well. Many thinking that any opioid um, in place would make a patient automatically opioid tolerant. Those of us on the medication safety team decided to actually go with a definition that is commonly out there from the FDA, as well as the Pain Society, for having at least one week of opioids, um, where we had a level of at least 60 MMEs per day, or several equal analgesic dosings of those products as well. Operationally, this creates a real problem, though, in terms of how we make this both accessible to the entire staff, but also place this definition to where it can be a visual reminder or a visual cue um, at the right time in medication management uh, so that uh, we do not have these mismatches of treating opioid-naive patients who don't meet the definition of opioid tolerant um, as such. Yeah, and quite similar to Joel, we relied on some of those definitions that are out there and published and look at the equi-analgesic dosing of different products. Uh, lucky enough that in our EPIC EMR for our system, uh, some of this work has been done to have um, the MMEs displayed or MEDDs displayed and calculated based on a table that we agreed upon as a close enough estimate of some of those uh, dosing patterns. And this looks at use over two weeks. Uh, defining what is opioid tolerant versus naive is easy to do, but we're, what we're finding difficult using that information and those MEDD calculations in a way that provides alerts to prescribers at the right point to provide them with the insight that that medication regimen may be inappropriate. So looking at some of those long-acting agents or potentially at uh, the fentanyl patches and mirroring that up with a certain MEDD threshold. What we're finding when we test some of these alerts is it's actually not leading to um, a high proportion of actionable uh, alerts. So we may have to tool uh, a bit with our definition and look at it a bit further to make sure that it, may, it meets some definitions for meaningful alerts and actionable items. <laughs> 
So, uh, Eli, are you allowing providers to self-select a status that you can start with right away, or are you work? Uh, you've touched on it a bit about the technology solution. Um, yeah, we're anything yeah, to add. Yeah, we're we're looking at kind of both uh, items. Currently, really focusing on the technology solution at this time and marrying up that MEDD calculation to potentially inappropriate orders or prescriptions. Uh, there is EPIC functionality that during the admission um, activity that opioid status can be selected by whoever is going through that navigator and also looking at that feature. It's not something we use right now at our institutions, but seeing what additional benefit or additional layer of safety that that um, feature may provide for our patients. But right now, really focused on the technology solution or the, the computerized solution rather than the, the manual selection of opioid status. Okay, on to the next question. You both uh, have used different electronic medical record vendors. So does that affect the approaches you're taking to leverage this technology to address these this best practice? Start with uh, Joel, you have Cerner, correct? Yes, yes. Um, we do have Cerner. I believe you have Epic. I have previously worked um, where I had Meditech. However, regardless of what we have, people tend to have a love-hate relationship with their EMR. But our standardized approach is that we are looking across the communities of the different EMRs, looking for best practices, because often what we can find is EMR agnostic. And so um, that's why we have both Eli and I bringing our ideas um, as we are both building our programs around this. So here we have quite a bit of rules that are either running in the background or are running during um, medication prescribing, such as with extended release opioids, uh, we do have a rule that currently fires to providers that to where Cerner actually decides whether or not it believes that the patient actually meets the definition of opioid tolerance um, as defined above. But um, we're trying to also look at how we can make this a little bit more transparent for everybody, not just physicians, but nurses and pharmacists as well, so that we have um, good definitions that are available uh, within the EMR uh, uh, that would help us as we are doing chart reviews, not just um, add an action uh, for something that we are not actually trying to do or that we don't actually want, but something that is very non-interruptive and one thing that we have um, is we call it a smart zone alert. So as you are reviewing the patient chart, different non-interruptive rules um, do fire to, uh, to the right of the screen. Um, and that may be something that is very similar to something else within the different systems, whether we're talking about Meditech or Epic or um, some other type of EMR system. Yeah, and I think for us uh, at BJC, we're lucky enough that uh, Epic has some of the 
features or tools available that uh, kind of help us start on this pathway uh, to kind of institute the best practice. But many, many of those tools are a bit rudimentary. We talked a bit about the opioid naive versus tolerant status that can be selected during the admission process, um, as well as, you know, our builders had worked on identifying MEDDs based on prescription fill history, uh, and that work has been done. Um, but we haven't really matched it up yet in a meaningful manner to uh, fully implement this best practice. And as I kind of network and as we network with other Epic users across the country, really haven't found anybody that's been able to connect all of these tools yet to fully implement, um, but we feel like we're getting closer. Yeah, the challenges of the electronic health record, um, stuff we deal with all the time. Um, I, I like the points you guys are making about, you know, the, the clinical decision support tools that you have got have to be at the right place, the, whatever, the five rights of CDS, the right person, the right time, the right alert, et cetera. Well, let's move on to what seems on the surface anyway, to me, to be a, uh, an easier task. It's similar to things that we have been uh, dealing with with other drugs uh, uh, for a long time, which was defaulting to the lowest initial starting dose and frequency when initiating orders for these extended release and long acting opioids. I think we'll uh, start with Eli on this one. Uh, many, many of our inpatient oral opioids do default to the lowest uh, starting dose. Uh, this includes items that are ordered within order sets or without uh, order sets. However, some of the items, including fentanyl patches and items for outpatient prescriptions, are actually selected as part of the dose when you select the drug. So you have a menu of different items and you select the drug and dose as you're selecting kind of the initial approach for that regimen. So that is a challenge we haven't really been able to, to break through, particularly on the outpatient prescription side yet, um, but hoping to look at it and kind of look at this best practice um, uh, suggestion and see if we need to make some changes for our outpatient prescribing modules. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I found is, you know, even though we've been very thoughtful and methodical in some of our oral opioid defaults on the inpatient side, without good communication as to the why uh, with all of our Epic builders, we've seen some of those things get uh, erased or go away and have to go back and double back and uh, redo some of the work that we've done. So I think it just shows how important it is to have good communication and understanding of some of the safety principles from all parties, whether that be not only just the pharmacy team, but the builder teams as well, to make sure that that why is understood and it is um, effective and durable for some of these changes. And Joel? Yes. Well, uh, for many of the reasons that Eli was talking about, we don't have the lowest initial dose and frequency defaulted on many things. However, we do have the most common and in many cases that does actually coincide. Um, for any medicate, <clears throat> excuse me, for any medication that has an immediate release and extended release product, what we do have um, in the system for three different categories um, for pain, cardiac, or um, psychiatric drugs, we do have a hard stop that is within the inpatient pharmacy to prevent product frequency mismatches, such as um, diltiazem, um, IR, or ER, um, as well as OxyContin 
IR as and also OxyContin. So, so with that, um, if we had um, an OxyContin um, that was um, being prescribed for every four hours, that would actually create a hard stop within the inpatient pharmacy. Um, so, uh, so we do have that sort of mechanism in place, um, but specifically on the defaulting uh, to to the lowest dose, that is often a work in project in process. That, um, as Eli was mentioning, unless you are extremely vigilant, uh, it often comes undone. Yeah, thanks for your uh, insights on that on that one. The uh, next best recommendation also seems similar to work we've done with other classes of drugs anyway, which is to alert practitioners when the dose adjustments, um, when they need a dose adjustment due to either age or renal or liver, liver impairment and, um, and even co-prescribing of other uh, sedating medication. So uh, Eli, how is that going? Yeah, I think this is an area that's rich for intervention um, and, and very tantalizing. We haven't yet really targeted any interventions around age, renal function, or co-prescribing with those other sedating medications, but certainly I think it's easy as medication safety pharmacists to recognize the risk, and I think this should be an area of focus in the future for our institutions. Uh, one item I am excited about is uh, some of our clinical specialists have worked to develop a prediction tool uh, to predict if someone has cirrhosis or liver impairment. And I don't think that's something that's oftentimes recognized or it's not uh, recognized to the same degree that it should be. And based on lab tests, procedure and diagnostic codes or medication uses, it has a, a very high predictive value um, to determine if someone has cirrhosis. So we've married that up with acetaminophen dosing currently, but I'm hopeful that in the near future, we can start to look at um, that prediction rule and use that with clinical decision support for opioids, and then hopefully be able to, to launch off of some of those experiences to dive into the age renal function and co-prescribing as well. Interesting. And, uh, and we are in a very similar situation. Uh, we are still really in our infancy stages and uh, um, looking at how we can best utilize some of our clinical surveillance and our pharmacy knowledge. Thank you. Yes, some uh, innovative work there, Eli. Um, moving on to towards the uh, the last best practice recommendation, which was I think is to it specifically calls out fentanyl patches for an opiate naive patients. This is the one that's been on the uh, on their list before, recommending that they eliminate that on opiate naive. Joel, that kind of gets back to your uh, initial story, right? Yes, that's exactly what I was talking about. This has traditionally been done at the point of verification with paper forms that were traditionally tracked, but nothing was actually hardwired. And instead, we were just monitoring on a monthly basis afterwards to ensure that everything uh, had a paper form filled out uh, at the point of verification. Now we're in the middle of transitioning to an electronic form 
to actually have a hard stop within pharmacy. Though I have to admit this isn't um, at the point of prescribing and only deals with inpatients. Um, that's something that we would love to transition to as a next step is some of our items that we are fitting in place for our inpatients. Um, you know, if we're going to be the best for uh, all that need us, uh, we need to ensure that we're the best for all that need us as well. Yeah, and, and for us, you know, really the focused targeted intervention has really been around this um, definition of opioid naive patients and hoping to combine that with meaningful clinical decision support at our facilities. Um, Certainly, we've done a fairly good job of eliminating fentanyl patches from order sets or treatment pathways such as early recovery after surgery or ERAS, uh, making sure that those aren't used as part of a management or a standard management for acute pain. But certainly, completely eliminating the use of fentanyl patches for acute pain remains a challenge. And without some of those human elements that Joel was describing, it's kind of hard from an electronic perspective to try to identify if what's being managed and treated is acute pain or more chronic pain. And that goes along with titration of the fentanyl patches as well. It's not always easy to understand or know if that titration is more for management on the inpatient side for uh, managing more acute pain syndromes or for more long-term chronic pain. So all these remain challenges and important targets for the future. Thanks, Eli. The uh, last best practice that uh, ISMP recommends for this is regarding automatic dispensing cabinets, which is one of the newer best practices that has its own new uh, new uh, ISMP targeted best practice. But this one is talking about removing fentanyl patches from areas where only acute pain is being treated. Eli, I'll have you go first here. What steps have, have you taken at BJC? Yeah, you know, we have eliminated fentanyl patches from many of these areas recommended by the ISMP breast practice, the emergency department, the perioperative, periprocedural areas, uh, et cetera. You know, and worked with our uh, PIXIS team, which is the automated dispensing cabinet that we use at our facilities. Uh, one of the success stories that I can share with this is we've really integrated some of our pharmacy members, technicians, and other pharmacy leaders in our review of safety practices and the ISMP quarterly action items. And the thought process around this is having more individuals review and lay eyes on some of these recommendations and understand the, the whys that we talked about earlier is helpful so that as requests come in, we don't see some of these safety practices drift. And kind of an important uh, success story I can share is we did have a, a request for one of our interventional radiology uh, departments to add fentanyl patches back to that area. And had that technician not been a part of some of these prior discussions, had not un understood some of the ISMP recommendations around this, uh, there might have been a rubber stamp and that item be loaded and be present in that uh, procedural area. But uh, this technician recognized the connection and uh, recognized the fact that these items should not be used for acute management of pain and was able to put the brakes on it and triage that request up a bit higher. Uh, so just a, a good example of sharing information from ISMP can help continue to augment patient care and, and enhance safety. Yeah, like with your system, um, we've eliminated patches in the ED and procedural areas as well. Um, I often find that I do 
um, much like what you were mentioning, Eli, I do need to audit every six months um, and just make sure that there uh, that there is no backsliding. Um, however, I've been auditing for six months now for a few years, and um, they've not been. But um, towards the very beginning, we did get requests to add them back, um, uh, just like what you were mentioning. Another thing that um, we did was uh, we have put in place an override um, a list for our non-ED, non-procedural areas in which um, we have taken fentanyl patches off of override. Believe it or not, um, that actually was on override beforehand. But in any case, that has actually been hardwired into the process. All of our automated dispensing cabinets that are not in ED or procedural areas across the system have the same list of overridable drugs. And so we have, and that is actually supported by policy now that we review on an annual basis. And um, there is a, um, a an actual process to get that amended or something added. But um, when it comes down to it, ensuring that that yes, it's taken out of those areas and you do keep up with those audits does is actually important for this um, point within our best practice. Yeah, you know, definitely the discharge time can be an area of risk. Um, you know, I think many of us on the clinical side or with clinical practice have seen some of those great drug regimens fall apart at the time of discharge. The majority of my experience, professional experience, has been at a, the academic flagship for our institutions. And the discharge time can be a time where there's less supervision and some of those practices or safety measures can kind of fall apart if there's not good supervision or good pharmacy or med safety practices in that discharge process. So this is really uh, an area of focus for us. Um, really, when we were talking about adding clinical decision support, matching opioid status with prescriptions, really making sure that that entire process can work well for the discharge process, uh, recognizing that that is a, a risk-prone time uh, during the transitions of care. Uh, what we found during some of our testing is certainly some of the rules will work very well for inpatient and inpatient prescribing as we've gone through and tested some of the things that we have built. But what hasn't worked that well is the discharge and the outpatient prescription practices. So we may end up exploring two different sets of rules or two different um, strategies for those populations for the discharge outpatient prescription side of things and then for the inpatient side of things. So you know, it's an exciting time to have ISMP push some of these initiatives, but uh, I think what you've heard um, throughout the conversation today is there's a, a number of challenges and difficulties really fully implementing uh, the ideas and insights from ISMP. And I think, you know, the, the discharge process is another area where we need to continue to be vigilant. Part of the context surrounding um, transitions of care um, is really struggling to keep those those pieces of information to at the right place in the 
CDSS framework, you know, how do we ensure that we have the right piece of information at the right time for the right patient? And so things like, I may call them MMEs, you may call them MEDDs, they're the same thing, but, um, but really is what um, a patient's going to be on, going to be the exact same thing as what they are on once they go home. The answer is no. <laughs> um, and so, so looking at how you how you change regimens up, um, especially in light of different patient characteristics, as well as um, what some of their regimen characteristics are in terms of drug drug interactions and stuff like that. That um, that becomes and still is a different process. And like you say, Eli, I, I believe that this very well may need to, to be two different sets of rules that are um, going on in the background so that we can actually understand this problem. All right. Well, um, that is all the time we have today. I want to thank uh, very much Joel and Eli for joining us to discuss this new best practice and uh, you listeners for uh, for for being here and listening in i hope uh, that their experience and insights are that they presented are going to help others uh, as ismp says identify and spot uh, to take action on some, one of the newest ismp best practices if you haven't before i encourage you to all to check out ishp's medication safety resources uh, page and other including podcasts other ismp targeted best practices sponsored by our sag uh, you can find some member exclusive offerings as such as the patient safety resource center and patient education resources through uh, one of our most popular ishp's most popular website safemedication.com you can also exchange ideas and ask questions with your peers on the ASHP Med Safety Connect community, which is pretty busy and active. So thanks again for tuning in for this session of ASHP's podcast on medication safety. And be sure to subscribe to our the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.